Amen. If you have your Bibles with you this morning, I hope you do. I want to encourage you to open them to 1 Samuel chapter 8. 1 Samuel chapter 8. 1 Samuel chapter 8. As you're finding your place in God's Word there, I want to welcome all those who are joining us via our live stream. We have hundreds that gather up with us online, and we're grateful for each and every one of you. Also want to welcome the venue service meeting right down the hall and Reach Church DeSoto. Uh, you as well. We're grateful for you and grateful that you're joining with us. I also want to remind you that this evening at 5 p.m. right here in this room, we're going to have a very special time. We're going to have a, a business meeting, kind of an abbreviated business meeting that will begin at 5 p.m. And then after that, about 30 minutes, we'll take a little short break and then we'll have an ordination service for two uh, men who have been serving in the life of our church, uh, and we're going to have an opportunity to affirm the call of God upon their lives, uh, one being Luke Polly and the other David Shaw. Uh, David Shaw serves within our worship ministry, and uh, Luke Polly serves within our student ministry and our collegiate ministry, along with Pastor Tavis, but uh, you'll want to be here. It's always a special time. There's no Chiefs game, so you got no excuse, all right? Uh, so you got no excuse. We planned that perfectly. You come join us right here in this room at 5 p.m. Well, we turn our attention to 1 Samuel chapter 8. And the nation within this passage is going to request a king. And there's not necessarily anything inherently wrong with that request. This is a nation that has been ruled by the patriarchs, uh, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And then the people wander and... God would lead them by the Levites and their teaching, and, and then God would appoint and raise up judges for them, men and women who would serve the Lord in their season and their time, and the people would continually fall away. We come to Samuel, and he will be the last of the judges, and he will introduce the monarchy. He'll set up uh, the time in the nation's uh, history that will probably be what Israel will refer to as their greatest time within all of uh, Israel's history, the time of David and, and Solomon. But before David comes, God is going to give them another king. In fact, he's going to give them so You know what Saul literally means? Seriously, I'm not making this up. You prayed for it. <laughs> you asked for it, and you're going to get it. There's nothing wrong with their request, but what is wrong is the motivation behind that. The real issue is they don't trust God. They don't trust God's sovereign rule. And the fact of the matter is, you study politics and you'll see man and really his inability to do what he knows needs to be done, and that is govern himself. Uh, man needs to be governed. God established government in Genesis after the flood. God said, whoever sheds man's blood by man, his blood will be shed. God recognizes this. But if you look at history, it is a sad commentary on the sinfulness of man. Because it doesn't matter what political system you set up. It can be uh, a monarchy. It can be a king. Uh, it can be whatever. You can do a democracy. And uh, I believe what we have in this representative republic here is the best man can do. But every form of government will always devolve when you do not recognize God as sovereign. And so here this nation, the, the root issue is they don't trust God and his rule. And we want what we want. And guess what God's going to do? In an act of judgment, he's going to give them what they ask for. 
With that in mind, let's pray together, then we'll work our way through this text. Father, we thank you for your word. God, we are so grateful. And I pray and I ask that you would help us today. And my prayer, Lord, is that you would bless your word. There's not a person in this room that needs to hear from me. The fact of the matter is all of us desperately need to hear from you. So God, prevent me from doing anything that would distract from the perfection of your word and the work of your spirit today. Help our eyes and our hearts to be illumined to the principles of this passage. We'd know better who we are, who you are, how we interact with you. I pray that you would change us by means of your word today. I I pray all of us would commit ourselves to trusting your rule over our lives. God, we love you. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Well, look with me. 1 Samuel 8, beginning in verse 1. It says, when it came about when Samuel was old that he appointed his sons judges over Israel. So we get to a point when it tells us that Samuel's old. We saw last week in verses 15 through 17 kind of a summation of the bulk of Samuel's ministry. It's sad it just gets those few verses, but that was the bulk of his ministry. That was the prime of his ministry. Most kind of uh, assume this was probably about a 20-year period of time in which he served. And we saw last week kind of going on that circuit between Bethel and Gilgal and Mizpah. And so he's just making this yearly circuit. And he's, he's going around judging the people, judging disputes. He's probably dedicated babies. He's probably marrying folks. He's probably burying folks. He's just doing the work of ministry and judging the nation. And then it says when Samuel was old. What's interesting about this is as I was looking at the commentaries, most believe that Samuel is somewhere between the ages of 54 to 64. And I said old. (laughs) Isn't it it funny though how as you grow older your definition of old changes? (laughs) There was a time when 50 was old. I mean, I don't even know how they survive at 50 now. It's like, man, that's young, man. You're in the prime of life at your 50s. Uh, but here is Samuel. And, and the point of the matter is, it, it's just the natural progression of Samuel's life. He gets to a place of understanding that I can't judge these people forever. And the fact of the matter is, Samuel was probably getting to a place just like all of us as we grow older, there's things that we can't do anymore. We don't have the energy that we used to have. And so he's making these circuits and he's doing all this ministry and the needs of the nation are incredibly great. And he just realized he comes to a very good realization in humility. I can't do this. I can't do this forever and not be as effective as I'd like to be. And so I really think the heart of Samuel is a heart of humility and his love for the nation to serve them and to see them continue long after he's gone. He's, he's beginning. It's like all of us. You get, you get to a certain point and you start thinking about your legacy. What are you going to leave behind? And, and so he's done all this work, but how will I leave this nation after I'm gone? And so he begins to think of a succession plan. How do I provide for them in my absence when I'm gone? Will there be leaders who love God and direct them in faithfulness? And so He's got these two boys, and, and, and it says he appointed them as judges. And, 
You know, there's a lot of conjecture over whether or not this was a sinful activity of Samuel. I, I don't really know. We do know that, that the judges were just appointed by God. And maybe, maybe Samuel does presume upon God in thinking that his boys would be the one. But whatever it is, we know that Samuel, his heart is right. I want to provide leadership. And we know that he, he, he at least saw some measure of hopefulness in his boys because Look at verse 2. It says, now the name of his firstborn was Joel, and the name of his second, Abijah, and they were judging in Beersheba. Um, Joel means Yahweh is God. Abijah means Yahweh is my father. And on the basis of the names alone, we can see that, that Samuel had high hopes for his boys. They were probably serving with him. They probably, to some extent, traveled with him in his circuit ministry and judging the nation. And he's seen some level of promise in them. He's got hopes for them. He's got dreams for them. And all of us have hopes and dreams for our children, for them to succeed and, and them to succeed in the right things and walk in faithfulness to God. And certainly, that's Samuel's hope for his boys. So he appoints them judges in Beersheba, south of the nation, probably about 20, 30 miles. Doesn't seem like much to us, but it was a great distance for them. And here they are. He appoints them judges in a remote location, and they fall outside the, the protection of his oversight and his influence. And so look at verse 3. It says, his sons, however, did not walk in his ways, but turned aside after dishonest gain and took bribes and perverted justice. So these boys, they get out from underneath the supervision of their dad and they begin to go wayward. It, you know, it, it was a reminder to me as I was studying this, the emphasis we put upon our students when they uh, exit out from underneath their homes. We, we put a great emphasis upon high school graduation and entering into college and many of them were entering into the workforce. And, and we know that as these students and as these young men and women begin to go further and further outside the protection of their parents' supervision, really that is when the choice gets difficult. Will they follow in the faithfulness of their parents or will they go their own way? And uh, here we see that they're going to depart. Now, this is not the same situation that we saw with Eli and his two boys, Hophni and Phinehas. Because with Eli and Hophni and Phinehas, we get every indication that Eli himself was engaged in immorality. That he was certainly permitting the activities of his boys and to some extent was engaged in it as well. And so at some point or another, Eli began to walk in unfaithfulness. And, and maybe his boys took it to another level. I don't know. But certainly we get the indication Eli wasn't living right and so he influenced his boys to follow in a, in a similar path of immorality and sin. But that's not the case with Samuel. Samuel, every indication we have with this man is he's walking in faithfulness. He's seeking to live a faithful life before the Lord and before his sons and his family. And yet his boys won't follow in his steps. And it's a good reminder. Listen, it's something I think that all, all of us as parents understand. Just because we walk in faithfulness there is no guarantee that our children will walk in faithfulness. As much as I wish it were the case, Christianity is not genetically transmitted. That our children have to make their own choices. They have to decide whether or not they'll follow in our path of, and continue a legacy of faithfulness to God. But we see here these boys, they're, they're, they're away from their parents and they're, they're thrust into a position of power and, and out there thrust in this position, they start to make some bad decisions. Can that ever happen that young men who start out really well and have great intentions when they're thrust into positions of power, authority, begin to get lured away 
by the lust of the eyes and the boastful pride of life and they get pulled into the things of this world and they make bad decisions. And certainly that's what we're seeing with these boys, Joel and Abijah. They're, they're put into a position of power with no real oversight or accountability and they're not grounded in the truth of God's word and they begin to sell justice to the highest bidder. It becomes all about what they can receive. What we see in First and Second Samuel over and over again is the difference between leaders who bless and serve and give and leaders who take and leaders who use. So we're seeing another picture of this in Samuel's uh, two boys, that, that they will be leaders who were intended to be a blessing, that, but they'll become a curse to this nation. They, they, they won't walk in faithfulness. They'll get pulled down by the world. As I was studying this, I couldn't help but think of Paul's words to Timothy in 1 Timothy 6 when he said, but those who desire to get rich in this world fall into a temptation and a snare and harmful desires which plunge men into ruin and destruction. And then you remember that verse, for the love of money. Remember this, it's not about wealth. Not about wealth. It's not about having wealth or not having wealth. It's about who has your heart. But Paul tells Timothy, the love of money, the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil, and some, by longing for it, have wandered from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. Boy, the sadness that I feel in my heart when I read about Joel and Abijah diverting from Samuel's path of faithfulness. And so now, though, the nation is in a bad spot and the elders have to intervene. So look at verse four. It says, then all the elders of Israel gathered together and came to Samuel at Ramah. So the elders, they're, they're, part of their role is to protect the nation and to ensure that the nation stays in faithfulness to God. And so they're put in a bad spot because they gotta do something here. They know that, that Samuel recognizes he can't judge over the nation forever. He's getting older. He's appointed. He's got a succession plan with his two boys. But the elders of the nation know that's not going well. And so they understand they have to intervene. That's a good thing. That's what elders are intended to do. They're intended to oversee and to keep the nation in faithfulness. So they see the nation diverting and they've got to step in. And so they go to Ramon, verse 5, and they said to Samuel, Behold, you've grown old. Your sons do not walk in your ways. Now appoint a king for us to judge us like the nations. It's interesting. The first part of their statement to Samuel is not necessarily bad. They're just stating truth. You're old and your boys are corrupt we got to do something. Up to that point, everything is fine. But that final phrase is where they get into trouble. Appoint for us a king to, to judge us like all the nations. And the fact of the matter is, it was not inherently wrong to ask for a king. I just mentioned it earlier. In fact, you'll remember when we were studying Genesis, God said in Genesis 49, the scepter, the kingly scepter will not depart from Judah. Uh, God was going to give them a king. In fact, in Deuteronomy 17, God gave the nation instructions. He said that when you enter into the land and you set up or appoint a king, this is what the king is supposed to look like. This is what he's supposed to do. And it talks about that king as being a man under authority. He's under the authority of God's word. And he loves the word of God and he writes the word of God. And he's under God's authority. And because he's under the authority, 
priority of God, he'll become a blessing to the nation. See, whenever you study politics, the key question is, who rules the rulers? Who rules the rulers? And if you get in a situation, it doesn't matter if you're talking about the Senate or Congress or representatives, if you have a people who do not recognize God as the ultimate authority, you will begin to see a nation that's on a downward spiral. And so here, uh, they want a king, but they don't want a godly king. That's not what they're asking for. We want a king like all the other nations. We want a king with all the pomp and the circumstance who looks like a king because quite frankly, I think the nation's a little embarrassed. We don't have a king like all the other nations. Who do you got? Well, we got this old man who can barely still get around. (laughs) That's funny. He's your leader. And so in their embarrassment, uh, we gotta have a king like the nations. And what they're demonstrating in their request is they don't trust God. They don't trust God to rule them. I, I thought about this, if, that's what they sh- if they're wrong in the, anth- the, the request that they made, what should they have done? Uh, here's what I believe, they should have gone to Samuel and said, Samuel, you're getting old, your boys aren't doing great. Samuel, would you intercede on our behalf to God? God, would, would you ask God to grant us a leader? Would you ask God to grant us a godly man who would lead us to continue in faithfulness? See, see, the fact of the matter is, it doesn't really matter what Samuel wants and it doesn't really matter what they want. It matters what God wants. But that's not their heart. They have a hidden agenda. You ever do that in your prayer life? You're praying, but you got a hidden agenda. That's this nation. So we don't want God's will, we want our will. Well, look at how Samuel responds in verse six. But the thing was displeasing in the sight of Samuel when they said, give us a king to judge us. And Samuel prayed to the Lord. Now this to me is absolutely remarkable. He hears this and it's displeasing to him. And we can, pers- we, we, we can understand that. We can understand how he would have been personally hurt. Because imagine one day you're, you're just out serving in your city and you get a knock on your door. The elders that are coming there, there's, there's a chance it could have been as large a group as 70 men. This might have been, been the beginning of the Sanhedrin that we'll see in the New Testament. But whatever it was, it was a large group of men who come to the door, knock on the door, Samuel, we gotta talk. And Samuel, here's the deal. You're old. You're not very good at your job anymore, and your boys are corrupt. I mean, put yourself in Samuel's shoes. You've sacrificed your life to serve the nation. I mean, you've given your life to these people. You've been traveling all around. You've been burying them. You've been marrying them. You've been dedicating their children. You've done the best to judge them and bring the word of God to the nation for years and years and years, and this is what I get as a thank you. Hey, you're not doing your job good. Give us a king. And I don't know about you, but I know in my life, I don't really like to be critiqued. Do any of us enjoy people telling us and making us aware of our errors? In our flesh, we don't like that, do we? And here, not only has Samuel been critiqued, but they're critiquing his boys. Now, I don't know about you, but I don't mind critiquing my boys, but I don't like other people critiquing my boys. It makes me mad. And if I had been Samuel, I would have said, listen, I'm mad. I've done all this for you. You get out that door, and I'm going to do what I'm going to do. You should be saying thank you. You ungrateful, stubborn nation, get out of here. 
But what's amazing to me is, listen, Samuel can't, to some extent, he can't control his initial response. Whenever people say things that do hurt, right? And we hurt, and a lot of times we can't control our initial response. But you know what we can control? Our secondary response. What amazes me about Samuel is not necessarily his initial response of displeasure. What amazes me is his second response is he goes and prays. Because the fact of the matter is sometimes when we're critiqued, sometimes the critiques that we receive, sometimes we need to listen to those critiques, don't we? Even though they hurt, sometimes we need people in our life who will say, this isn't going well, and you need to open your eyes to this. And, but, but sometimes we, we, we react in anger, and we say things we shouldn't say, and we do things we shouldn't do. And what we would be better doing is say, thank you so much. Can I just tell you, I need, I need to go pray about this. How much pain would we avoid in our lives when in those moments when we were critiqued or something hurtful was said to us, if we stopped before we lashed out in anger and we just said, thank you so much, can, can you give me some time to pray about these things? <laughs> oh, what peace we often forfeit. Oh, what needless pain we bear, all because we do not carry everything to the Lord in prayer. Samuel prays, what a great response. You know what I think? I just picture this, them coming in, making these statements in him, saying, hey, um, guys, can... Can I have some time to pray about this? I really think, I may be wrong, I think Samuel's heart is maybe I do need to make a change. I think Samuel knows his boys are corrupt. They're not saying anything he doesn't know. What I love about Samuel and what he demonstrates that the leadership doesn't demonstrate is Samuel just wants to be faithful to God. There's such humility in this that God, even if I gotta sit down, God, if you gotta sit me down to, to accomplish your will, that's fine with me. I just wanna be faithful. I gotta pray to the Lord. And so the Lord responds. Samuel prays, the Lord responds. Verse seven, the Lord said to Samuel, listen to the voice of the people in regard to all that they say to you, for they've not rejected you, but they've rejected me from being king over them. You know what I love about this? God is so gracious to Samuel. Samuel goes to God in humility. I'm hurt, God, and I, I don't know. Maybe there's some things I need to change. I don't know. What do you want me to do? And the first thing God says to Samuel, Samuel, you need to know something right now. It's not really about your age, and it's not even really about the immorality of your sons. It's about me. It's not you they don't like. It's me they don't like. And then he tells them in verse eight, this is a long, long, this is, they got a history of this. Verse eight, like all the deeds which they have done since the day that I brought them up from Egypt, even to this day, in that they have forsaken me and served other gods, so they are doing to you also. God says to Samuel, they're not really rejecting you, they're rejecting me. And, and we need to make note here that this is not an outright rejection of God. It's not like they're saying, God, we don't want anything to do with you. No, this is a, this is a rejection of God that says, God, uh, we, we kind of want you around and we, we wanna trust you, but it'd be a whole lot easier if you were a God that we could see with our eyes. God, it'd be a whole lot easier if we had a golden calf. God, we trust you, but it'd be a whole lot easier if we had a box we could carry around that would, that would be a, a, a physical symbol of you and would give us blessing wherever we took you around. God, God, we trust you, but it'd be a whole lot easier if we had a king in front of us with, that was dressed in royal garb. And God, we trust you, but it'd be a whole lot easier if we had a great army to protect us. And to me, this is the most dangerous rejection of God, and, and I think it's the rejection of God that oftentimes we fall into. It's not an outright rejection. It's not that we don't want God, but we say to God, God, we trust you, but it'd be a whole lot easier if I had a better job. God, we trust you, and we love you, and we want your blessing, but it'd be a whole lot easier if you'd change my bank account. 
And God, I love you and I trust you, but it'd be a whole lot better if my, my health situation was a little better. And what we're saying to God in that is, God, we don't really want you, we want what you can give us. Boy, that, that's a dangerous rejection of God. It's a walking in disobedience. When what we see throughout scripture is God desires a people who will trust in him alone. If there's one thing you see throughout scripture, God wants a people who will say, God, we love you, we will obey you, and whatever you give or don't give, we're gonna trust you. What a powerful picture. I, I thought of Job in Job 13, 15, when Job says, even though he slay me, yet will I trust him. That God, I don't care what you do. I'll never stop trusting you. That's the, kind of, that's the kind of people God longs for. And the fact of the matter is, that is what made the nation of Israel distinct. Whether they had a king or didn't have a king, what made Israel distinct is they recognized that ultimately it doesn't matter who's king, it doesn't matter who's in charge, God is our ruler. And we trust in him alone. We're grateful for the kings he gives us. We're grateful for the people he raises up. But we don't really trust them because they're sinners. We trust in God. And we trust in him alone. And it made them distinct. I mean, can you imagine this nation wandering around? What, what makes y'all great? You don't even have a king. You got some old man that follows you around and prays. What makes us great is we recognize God is our king. And he provides, and he's our protection, and he's our refuge, and he's our salvation, he's our hope, and he's our joy. That's what made them distinct. And can I tell you, church, that's what makes us distinct. You know what Peter said? Peter said in 1 Peter 2, I believe verse 9, you're a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession, that you might proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. I love the King James Version. You know what it says? It says, you're a peculiar people. We are intended to be odd. And we're odd, because not because we don't have the problems that the world has. We're, we're, we're odd because regardless of what problems we have, we're okay as long as we got God. That our happiness and our joy and our fulfillment and our security is not based in a king, is not based in a president, is not based in a political system, is not based in a legislator, it's not based on the size of our bank account, it's based on the fact that Jesus is our king. And he's sitting on his throne and he's in charge and I'm gonna trust him because he's really good. That's what God longs for. But we're to be different, we're to be peculiar. I saw this week a little uh, deal, it had a... Uh, it was responding to a parent that was homeschooling and it said this, this, this person said to them, listen, if you keep homeschooling your kids, they're not gonna fit in the world. And, and the person responds back, that's the point. <laughs> We're not supposed to fit in. We're supposed to be odd. And yet so much of our time is trying to have a king just like the nations. We wanna have a life just like the nations. God's called us to be peculiar. So this nation, they don't, they don't trust God. And look at verse nine. Now then listen to their voice, God tells Samuel. However, you shall solemnly warn them and tell them of the procedure of the king who will reign over them. God says, this is so good. He's so gracious. If I'd been God, I'd said, said to the nation, sit down, shut up. You're not getting a king because you don't even know what you want. But God says, we're gonna be gracious to them. We're, we're gonna warn them. 
We're gonna warn them. I'm gonna be long-suffering, but I want them to know. I wanna know exactly what they're gonna get. And then we see a description of what they're gonna get. Look in verses 10 through 17. So Samuel spoke all the words of the Lord to the people who had asked him of a king. He said, this will be the procedure of the king who will reign over you. He'll take your sons and place them for himself in his chariots and among his horsemen, and they'll run before his chariots. He'll, He'll appoint for himself commanders of thousands and of fifties and some to do his plowing and to reap his harvest and to make his weapons of war and equipment for his chariots. He'll also take your daughters for perfumers and cooks and bakers. He'll take the best of your fields and your vineyards and your olive groves and give them to his servants. He'll take a tenth of your seed and of your vineyards to give to his officers and to his servants. He'll also take your male servants and your female servants and your best young men and your donkeys and use them for his work. And he'll, he'll take a tenth of your flocks and you yourself will become his servant. Now, just understand, this is not the way a king was supposed to act. But folks, this is the normative experience of any type of rule over a nation that is not founded upon God. This is what you will always get. But this is not the way a king was supposed to act. As I already mentioned in Deuteronomy 17, he was to be a man who loved the law of God. In fact, he's the only person in scripture that's commanded to have a quiet time. That the king, every day, he was commanded to write out the law in the presence of the Levites. Because God says, if this nation ever gets to a place where they have a ruler who does not recognize the divine authority of God in his truth, that nation will devolve into sinfulness. And what's worse is the leader will become a leader who uses instead of blessings. In fact, if there's a verb that you see in those verses 10 through 17 over and over again, I underlined it every time, it's the verb take. They want a king who will give, they want a king who will bless, and God says all he's going to do is take. Because he doesn't recognize divine authority. If he's not humble under the hand of God, he'll begin to see you as people he can use instead of people that he was commanded to bless. So this nation, this nation is warned. Look at verse 18, it says, then you'll cry out in that day because of your king whom you have chosen for yourselves, but the Lord will not answer you in that day. Boy, what a sad verse of scripture. God says to him, there's gonna come a day when what you asked for is gonna turn out to be a curse, and God, I'm gonna start looking really good to you, and you're gonna want me, and you're gonna cry out to me, and I'm not gonna answer, I'm gonna let you simmer in your sin. Listen to me this morning. God is not mocked. Whatever a man sows, that he will also reap. And they're going to sow in disobedience and they're going to reap what they asked for. God forgives. But never forget this. Sin always has consequences. And so... We see that they are obstinate, verse 20, or verse 19, nevertheless, the people refused to listen to the voice of Samuel, and they said, no, but there shall be a king over us, that we may also be like the nations, that our king may judge us and go out before us and fight our battles. Verse 21, now Samuel, after he had heard all the words of the people, he repeated them in the Lord's hearing. Don't you love that? Samuel says, let's just get this straight. I'm gonna repeat it again, because I wanna make sure you hear clearly what you're asking for, and I wanna make sure God hears you say it in front of him that you want what you want. You don't really want what God wants. You want what you want. And in verse 22, the Lord said to Samuel, listen to their voice and appoint them a king. So Samuel said to the men of Israel, go every man 
to a city. And what's interesting about this request, the question that's gotta be asked is if the request was so bad, why didn't God just say no? If the request is so bad, why didn't God just say, no, you're not gonna get it? If the request was so bad, why did God give it to him? Why did God, because certainly God is sovereign, he could have stepped in and said, you're not having it. Why does God, if it's so bad, why does God give it to him? And here's the truth. It was the truth for them, and it's the truth for us. We all need to hear this. Sometimes God gives us what we want to teach us the hard way that we can only find satisfaction in him. Sometimes God gives us what we want so that we'll learn the hard way that the only person will ever be satisfied in him is him. What they're gonna learn is what they ask for becomes more of a curse than a blessing. You ever had that in your life? You asked God for something, you were obsessed about it, you wanted it so bad, you were praying about it all the time. And you were convinced it was best for you. And if you just had this thing, all would be right. It'd be good. God, I know you're sovereign. But I know what I know. And this is what I want. And this is what's going to be good for me. This is going to make me happy. It'll fulfill my life. And you obsessed over it. And then God gave it to you. And over time, you realized that what you asked for was not good. And what you asked for ended up taking a lot more than blessing. It ended up (laughs) becoming a curse instead of a blessing. I've seen men who have been men who have pursued power and position. They want a job promotion. They are laser focused. They're ambitious. And listen, ambition is not a bad thing. But ambition for the things of this world is always trouble. And they were so ambitious after a position of power and authority that they began to compromise in other areas of their lives. And when they attained the position, they found out that it cost them a whole lot more than what it gave them. I've seen men ruin their families in pursuit of things that God said, you want it, you can have it. But it's going to take a whole lot more than it gives. Well, I think we've all had those situations in our lives. I know as I look back and thought back over my life, I could think of situations where I thought I knew better than God. This is what I need. This is what I want. And God gave it to me. Sometimes the worst thing that God can do is the greatest act of judgment upon our lives is to give us what we request. And I know in my lives, maybe you've experienced this too, when God said no, no. When I had a request and God clearly said no. Then I can tell you there's been times in my life when God said no and initially I got mad. But you know what I've learned? Sometimes God's no is his greatest act of merciful protection in our lives. Sometimes the no's of our life are God's amazing ways of protecting us. In fact, are the great Where's the great theologian Garth Brooks? Sometimes God's greatest gifts are unanswered prayers. I was so worried this was going to come across as a country song today. Um, But the fact of the matter is, we don't really know what we need. And we don't see the bigger picture. 
and God knows. You know, I, I find myself over years of learning the hard way. Now I pray, more often than not, I pray, God, protect me from my own stupidity. God, protect me from what I think I want and think I need because God, the fact of the matter is I'm a sinner and my wanter is messed up. And sometimes I want things I don't really need. And so God, I am a sheep and I ask you to protect me with your sovereign wisdom and will. Whatever that means, God, you can take me out, you can take me home, you can set me down, but all I want is you. God longs for a people who will trust in him and trust in him alone. You know, I've thought about this. What if Israel had simply just trusted God? What if they had gone to Samuel, we trust. Whatever God gives, we just want to be faithful to God. The fact of the matter is, God was going to give them David. They were going to have a king. They could have missed out on so much pain and heartache in their life, but all of this was a beautiful part of God's sovereign plan. They're gonna get Saul, and Saul will not pray. Saul will not consult the word of God. In fact, at the end of his life, he's gonna consult witches, and he will become a curse more than a blessing. And God will give him David, and David is a good king, but he's a sinner too. And he'll have his own problems and God will give him Solomon and he'll start off well and he won't do good. And then Rehoboam will come and he's worse than Solomon. And it will be a downward spiral. Listen to me, God is gonna give him a king but there's only one good and perfect king and his name is King Jesus. And the fact of the matter is he's already been established as king. In Psalm 2, you remember, why do the nations rage and the peoples plan and devise a vain thing? The kings of the earth take their stand against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let us tear his fetters apart and let us cast away his cords from us. You know, the world doesn't want God to rule their life. And the fact of the matter is, prior to faith in Christ, you didn't want God to rule your life. You wanted to do whatever you wanted to do. You wanted to go wherever you wanted to go. And you said, God, I don't want you. And the nations say, God, we don't want you. And the result or the reaction of God in heaven is what? He who sits in the heavens laughs. You know why God laughs? Because it doesn't matter if you don't want his control or not. He is in control. That's the joke is that people think they're actually controlling their lives. There's only one who's in control and it's God. And you know what he says? As for me, I have installed my king upon Zion, my holy mountain. And Jesus says, surely I'll tell the decree of my Lord, for he said to me, you're my son, today I've begotten you. Ask of me and I'll surely give you the nations as your inheritance and you shall break them like a rod of iron and you shall shatter them like earthenware. Listen, there's only one good and perfect king and his name is King Jesus. And he says to all of us, come to me, you who are weary and heavy laden, and I'll give you rest. Sin and Satan is a hard master and he will drive you into pain and suffering. But there's a good and perfect King, King Jesus. And if you'll bend the knee, you can know his forgiveness, his grace, his freedom from sin and the bondage of death. And you can know that one day you'll be with him forever in heaven. But listen to me, if you will not bow the knee to King Jesus today, just know this, one day you will bow forcibly as he extends his scepter. Because every knee is gonna bow. And every tongue is going to confess. I encourage you today, all of us, let's submit our lives completely to King Jesus.
Father, we thank you for your word this morning that speaks so plainly to us about who you are, who we are. God, we are sinners. We are broken. And God, we are so grateful that you love us. Even despite all of our sin and brokenness, you love us. And you long to rule and reign over our lives, to direct us in accordance with your perfect will. And God, I pray for those of us that do know you today, we would trust in you and you alone. God, whatever it is in our hearts that we're obsessing about, whatever it is today that we think if we just had that, God, I pray that we would lay it at your feet today and say to you, no matter what you give, we're content in you. And God, I pray that if there's anybody here that doesn't know you, maybe, maybe they're reluctant about submitting to your lordship because they're afraid that there's some things in their life they're gonna have to lay down. I pray that they would know that today, not only are there some things that they're gonna have to lay down, the fact of the matter is they're gonna have to die. They're gonna have to lay everything down all of their life, but I pray that they would know today that what they receive in Jesus is far greater than anything they'll lay down. I pray that they would know the beauty of King Jesus. How do we know he's good? Because he died for us. God, I pray that they would be drawn by your grace and they would trust in Christ as their Lord and Savior to know his kingly rule in their life. God, thank you for your love and your grace. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.